do remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, there are, there's a pew Bible right below and in front of you, a blue English Standard Version. You can turn there to Judges 20. We have this Sunday and then the 27th as our final sermons on Judges. And uh, we'll read all of Judges 20. It's a long chapter, but it needs to be read. We get to read it. It is a blessing. But before we do read, let us go to our God asking for his help in understanding this text. Our gracious God, we are thankful that you bless us as we read your word. We thank you that your word is a blessing. Even difficult texts, as we saw last week and even this week, we see a divided people. You bless us with your word. We pray, Lord, that we would understand the blessings from this text. Open our eyes, open our hearts to see wonderful things here in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Judges chapter 20. Hear now the word of God. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people, of all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel." Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel." So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. 
Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The, ben- the people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went out against them, uh, went against them out of Gibeah the second day, and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. And the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city of the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel, who were in ambush, rushed out of their place for Amara And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us, as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Nohah as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. Eighteen thousand men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. Five thousand men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to Gedome, and two thousand men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were twenty-five thousand men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon and remained at the rock of Rimon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, 
men and beasts and all that they found, and all the towns that they found they set on fire. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Another hard chapter. One of the key principles of living with loved ones is unity. There is strength in unity. There is physical strength when people are united as in an army. There is moral strength when, say, father and mother are committed to a decision that they have made for their child despite their child's fierce opposition and attempts to divide the two. Unity, on the other hand, can be used for ill purposes. Sadly, one parent might cover for another in the mistreatment of a child. Unity is not morally neutral. We must ask why people are united. Are they united for good or are they united for ill? In our text this morning, we see a people united in sin, digging their heels into the ground. We also see a people united against sin, doing anything it takes to do away with the sin. There is a clear good side and clearly a bad side in this chapter, in this troubling story. But even the good side is not without its own troubles as we'll see, and as we'll see as we finish the book in a couple weeks. And as we approach the end of this book of Judges, we actually then come to a lose-lose battle. One side wins, but both sides lose. There is then much to learn about godly unity against sin. The point in the message here is, that despite the costliness of obedience, God's people remain united with the Savior against sin. Now, I won't rehearse all of the gory details from the previous chapter, chapter 19, but you recall the final verse, which was either said by the Levite or by the author of Judges, consider it, take counsel, and speak. You recall that last chapter we had the rape and murder of the concubine of the Levite. And we're not going to get into all the details of the Levite's own uh, mistelling of the story in Judges 20, but as we read, he doesn't give the whole story. But he does give us the details that the concubine was violated, she was murdered, and then he divided her up and sent her her pieces to all of Israel with the counsel, with the exhortation to consider it, take counsel, and to speak up. And so now it is time to see Benjamin's response to this corporate call from Israel. What will they do? How will they treat their own Gibeah? Again, verse 1 says, Then all of the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. So everyone of Israel from top to bottom came 
as one man. That's Dan, the northernmost, and Beersheba, the southernmost part of Israel, from top to bottom of the land. Even the land of Gilead, east of the Jordan, assembled. This is like saying that everyone, not, not as far as mileage is concerned, but everyone from Maine down to Florida, and from Florida over to California, they all assembled as one man, united against one You could say, for instance, all of America coming up against, say, New York, asking New York to call, uh, to take account for its actions. Nothing particularly about New York, but that's just the one that came to my mind, okay? Could throw in another state in there. And so these Israelites call upon Benjamin to do the right thing, which is very clear in the text, is to purge the evil from their midst to get rid of the evil, to uproot it. Justly, they are asking for their worthless fellows, those criminals, those inhospitable homosexuals that we saw last chapter, last week. And according to biblical law, it is just. It would have been just to have all of these men stoned to death. They should have been executed. And surely... As we remember the story in Judges 19, our hearts also cry out for justice. If you just put yourself in that spot, if you were part of Israel and you saw that this had happened to one of your own, surely your heart would cry out for justice as well. Surely our hearts join with Israel's in this grievous cry for justice. The Benjaminites surrounded the house of the old man, demanding that young Levite. And like the Benjaminites, these 400,000 Israelites have surrounded the Benjaminites, banging down the doors of their hearts, demanding justice, asking that these worthless fellows be given up. They would be justly dealt with, that they would be purged. The land would be purged. But sadly, as we see, you see a tribe united, refusing to listen to their brothers, Israel. Benjamin is too proud of himself, thinking that his power is no match for the strength of Israel. Even though, if you recall the numbers, Israel is much more numerous. Israel has 400,000 men of war. And what does Benjamin have? 26,700. Verse 13, second part, it shows their refusal. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. 26,000 men of war, but 700 chosen men, lefties, well equipped with a slingshot. These were the Ehuds of the day. In fact, one commentator said that it might have been from this group of men that Ehud eventually would come. This is something akin to the Navy SEALs or the Green Berets. These are the top of the top. These are the kind of men that you want fighting your battles. So, okay, what's 400,000 compared to 26,700? And 700 of these being the few, the proud. A sad reality here dear ones, is that none of this excellent 
powerful, mighty strength should have been used against Israel. It should have been used instead against their own Benjaminites, those of Gibeah. They should have policed themselves. They should have seen the wickedness of these men of Gibeah and used their strength to bring these men to justice. Instead, as one commentator says, they circled the wagons around these sociopaths. Here we have a tragedy then, when tribal blood is thicker than covenantal blood. But the irony here, dear ones, is that this is still covenantal blood. Because we're talking about Israel and Israel. Benjamin of Israel. Gibeah of Benjamin. This is all of Israel. They're all tied to the covenant. And here they are, at odds with one another, forgetting their unity, forgetting the sense of justice. And it is sad. It is grievous. It is lamentable. And the Benjaminites are called brothers to the Israelites three times in verse 13, then in verse 23, and then in verse 28. These Benjaminites are brothers to Israel. Have they shown themselves to be brothers? No. They're no true brothers at all. Because a true brother rebukes, and a true brother receives a rebuke. A true brother, a righteous brother, strikes the brother who has left the paths of righteousness. And the one who is stricken receives it and considers it a kindness, as the psalmist says. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness from the Lord. But the Benjaminites have, in fact, become Canaanites in their conduct. As they have chosen to defend the horrifying, heinous sins of their own by waging war with all of Israel. And so we see one tribe buckling down, doubling down, defending its own sin. And we see this behavior both in the world and in the church today. I'm not sure if you've seen this recent trend, but there is one in the world called divorce parties. Divorce parties. According to one article, the hot new invite is the invite for a divorce party. The Wall Street Journal calls these parties a reverse bachelorette party. They're just what they sound like. They're celebrations. They're get-togethers because of a divorce. Amazon and Etsy are capitalizing on this. They're selling t-shirts. I do, I did, I'm done. There are divorce party games, divorce cakes, divorce gifts, a huge sale, a huge increase in sales for this kind of gathering. It's not to say that there aren't biblical grounds for divorce ever. But even so, though there are, every divorce is a sad affair, isn't it? We should believe that. God does say he hates divorce. You can hold to the biblical grounds for divorce and also the reality that it is grievous. God does not like when man and woman separate. But this is the kind of behavior that we would expect from the world that doesn't value marriage as Christians ought to. But bringing it closer to home as far as at least language of church is concerned, there are people in the, in the church that defend their own, or that carry on unchecked. Just consider how some in the church 
reacted or um, lived their lives during Pride Month? Have you heard of the Sparkle Creed? The, the Sparkle Creed. Some are nodding their heads. Yeah, I've heard it. So it, it, this was, I think, written maybe a couple of years ago. But I guess every Pride Month now it's getting some more traction. And there's the Lutheran false pastor, Anna Helgen, who didn't write it, but she, on one Lord's Day during Pride Month, led her congregation in reciting not the Apostles' Creed, that creed that unites Christians from generation to generation, place to place, no, no, the Sparkle Creed. And some of the Sparkle Creed reads as follows, I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. Thought that would have gotten a bit of a reaction, but... uh, I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. I believe in the church of everyday saints as numerous, creative, and resilient as patches on the AIDS quilt. Yes. I believe in the call to each of us that love is love is love, so beloved, let us love. There's more to it, but that's the essence of this Sparkle Creed. What should Lutherans do? For the, the, the Lutherans who love the Lord, who love the Scriptures, who love image bearers, who love their own denomination, what should they do when they see a Lutheran false pastor reciting, leading the congregation in this kind of creed? Should they just let it go? See, in the spirit of diversity, tolerance, in the spirit of love, we just let these things go? No, they should call others to repentance. Our own denomination has done this very thing. In June, we celebrated 50 years of being a denomination. We, the PCA, came out of the PCUS, the Presbyterian Church in the United States. The PCUS, now called the PCUSA. And one of the motions that we passed at this last General Assembly was to republish that initial declaration of why we are leaving the PCUS, to republish that to the PCUSA as one daughter from her prodigal mother, to call them to repentance. Because it is our heart's desire as a denomination to see people repent, to see our own denominationally, the Presbyterian Church, to see them repent, to confess, to find salvation, to find truth, courage, humility, and all the rest in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Unaddressed, unrepentant sin will certainly be addressed by the Lord. It is right for the church of God to be the people of justice against sin. We are never to tolerate sin. To love the grace of God is not to turn a blind eye to the sins of others. Yes, even those sins of our dearly beloved. I said this last week. I'll ask it again. How nasty must the sin be before it is exposed, before it is repented of? How frequent must it be? How regular must it be? 
before we wake up and address it. If we are called to forgive the sin seven times a day, if the person comes, confesses, repents, surely we are called to expose the sin. We are called to confront our brother and sister, aren't we? To show him his sin. And if he confesses, he repents. Praise God, you have gained a brother. That's what Matthew 18 says. We are supposed to call upon them even as they might refuse to acknowledge, refuse to deal with, but instead defend their own sins. And why are we supposed to do this? Why are we called upon to call upon our brothers and sisters? Because we are so interested in hunting for sin? Because we're just a bunch of legalists? Because we're just a bunch of harsh judgmentalists? No. It's because we as a people hate sin. And we don't want to mess around with it. First and foremost, you hate your own sin because you know what it took Jesus. It took Jesus to get to the cross because that's sin. You hate sin. Hate sin. Mortify sin. That is the message over and over in Scripture. Wherever it is found, you hate it. And it starts with you. It starts with me. You hate it. You confess it. You don't defend it. Why do we do this? Why do we look for and uproot sin? For the beautiful purpose of repentance, for forgiveness, for reconciliation, for restoration. Consider Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. A grievous sin. There was a man who had his father's wife. He was sleeping with his stepmom. And what does Paul do? He says, deliver this man over to Satan. Kick him out of the church. Excommunicate him. Why? For the destruction of his flesh. May he know that he is in the most perilous condition when he is apart from the means of grace. And not only for the destruction of his flesh, but for the good of his soul. Because the end game is not that this man be shamed and he see his sin, but he be so ashamed of his sin that he runs to the Lord, finds forgiveness, reconciliation, that his soul thrives as it is, as it is resting in union and communion with the Jesus Christ, his Redeemer. Benjamin's unity was a sinful unity. They defended their own sinfully. Israel's unity was not a sinful unity. Their unity was a commendable unity. Three times this chapter says that Israel arose as one man. And if you read the book of Judges, if you've been following along, you are amazed at that at that emphasis, three times, as one man, as one man, as one man. You look at these people, you say, united? This is wild stuff. How could they be united? This is a, a truly remarkable unity. More unity even than what Deborah was able to garner in Judges 4 and 5. It is amazing unity. When you remember its striking absence with the Ephraimites and Gideon. Or the Ephraimites again and Jephthah. Or Judah 
not united to Samson. So sad were those cases. And we ask, why couldn't Israel have been this united against the wicked, against all of those other ites? But we'll take it when we can get it. Whenever the church is united against sin, that is a glorious thing. And as they assemble as one man, they resemble, they represent the one man who is against sin. Jesus Christ, who hated sin so much that he died for it. He died for you and me to deal with sin. Who didn't care about the surface level manifestations, but got to the heart and died for your heart. That that dead heart would now be an alive heart. That would beat in unison with his heart. That's why he hated. That's why he approached sin. That's why he talked about sin like he did. He didn't pussyfoot around sin. He didn't say in the spirit of love, in the spirit of tolerance. No, in the true spirit of real love, he didn't tolerate sin. But allowed himself to be on the cross for that sin. And it isn't just the Son, it is the Father as well. And the Holy Spirit the Trinity from before the foundation of the world saying, declaring, we hate this sin. We hate this evil that will come about from Adam and Eve. And so we will do something about it. The Father says to the Son, I will send you. And the Son, yes, you will. And the Spirit says, I am coming too, and I will apply the work of Christ to the hearts of the elect. The whole Trinity against sin for the salvation of sinners. Praise be to our God, three in one. And we model that just a little bit as we, as a church, are united against sin. Verse 29. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. There's, in this section, there's a a general description of how things happened, and then there are more details about, uh, about the actual fight. And we see poetic justice meted out to the tribe of Benjamin here. The Benjaminites fled to the rock of Rimon, which might mean nothing special to you, but the word means pomegranate. It's used romantically of the body in Song of Solomon chapter 8, verse 2. Why do I bring that up? Because it points us, it reminds us of the sexual abuse that happened in the previous chapter. Verse 45 says that 5,000 were cut down, or literally gleaned, using the same language to describe what happened to the poor concubine in Judges 19, verse 25. And the remnant of Benjamin fled to Rimon and hid for four months, which you'll recall was the amount of time that the Levite's concubine was with her father. She, she fled him, having committed adultery. She fled him and went to her father for four months. Reminding us here, in, that this account, that these Benjaminites are receiving, they're tasting their own medicine. And it is hard. Well, poetic or not, justice comes from the hand of the Lord. You see this in verse 35. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, 
And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. Oh, sure, the Israelites were there. Their hands were used, their weapons were used. It was the Lord who defeated. The Israelites here do not overreact. They gave Benjamin a chance to avoid all of this. Give up the criminals, and that'll be the end of it. And the Lord, when he has sought, he doesn't stay silent. Who, go, who shall go up? Judah shall go up. The Lord says, go up, I will give them to you. And so what does verse 35 say? But that it was the Lord who defeated the Benjaminites. But even in all of this, do you see that there is still a remnant? There's still a remnant of grace. Not all of Benjamin is gone. Israel lost 40,000 men after the first two days of the battle. Israel lost 10% of their army. Benjamin, however, lost 95% on the last day of battle. But the Lord could have wiped out all of Benjamin, but he doesn't. Why? Because of mercy. We see then justice and mercy. Justice as Benjamin is defeated by the Lord, yet mercy as there is still a preserved Benjamin. God keeps his promise to Benjamin through Jacob in Genesis, and he preserves this tribe, even eventually bringing out of it Israel's first king, Saul, who wasn't a great king, as we know. But there is someone later from the tribe of Benjamin whose writings we have, the Apostle Paul. Have you thought about if Benjamin were gone, we wouldn't have Paul, and we love Paul. Church discipline is a gift from God for the purification of his church. Going back to that episode in 1 Corinthians 5, discipline isn't just for the soul of the offender. is isn't just individualistic, that this man's flesh would be destroyed, that his soul would be improved, that he would flee to Christ. It is that, but it's more than that. It's, it's, there's a corporate focus for the sanctification of the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, as Paul says. We are to cleanse out the leaven. It is a spiritual good when a person is taught rightly the word of God. It is a spiritual good when a person receives correction humbly from the word of God. It is a spiritual good when the person receives a rebuke with repentance from the word of God. It is a spiritual good when the person is trained in righteousness after the word of God. And it is a spiritual good for the church when the one who refuses God's word no longer affects the church, as this is a little taste of what the new heavens and earth will be like. Most of us know that our own denomination for the last number of years has faced the the problem of revoice theology or side B Christianity. If you don't know what that is, ask me afterwards, but it has to do with um, basically maintaining same-sex attraction as not sinful in itself, but it's just the act that is sinful. Well, that thought 
pervaded, uh, has pervaded the PCA for a while. And thankfully, rather than leave the denomination, a lot of us fought back, said no, this, meant, this mindset has no place in this faithful denomination. We must uproot this, get this out. And some of these Rue Voice ministers, they felt the pressure, and they left. And the PCA is the better because of it. Of course, we have other problems in the denomination. No denomination is perfect, and we are keep on keeping on. We as a denomination want to fight for that holiness, to strive after it as a denomination without which no one will see the Lord. And we're thankful that Christ's church in this denomination is now a better place because we want to deal with sin. But the work of purifying the church comes from time to time with some suffering. There is humiliation. There is humbling. There are cries to the Lord as they have sought his face, as they've united with one another for justice. Look at verse 18. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. You recall that this was the question, the very beginning of Judges. Who is going to lead the way? Judah shall lead the way. But here, sadly, again, it's Israel against Israel. The Israelites, despite their huge numbers, have a really hard time finishing off these Benjaminites. Day one, they're told, Judah shall lead the way. That's all God gives them. He doesn't say, Judah shall lead the way, and you'll be victorious today. He just says, Judah shall go up first. And so, they fight. And the Benjaminites, these 26,700 men, put up a very good fight for three hard days. And the Benjaminites kill 22,000 of the Israelites on the first day. Naturally, if you're, on, if you're on the side of Israel, you are confused. You are sad. You are mourning the death of your kindred. Here they inquire the Lord, Oh God, do we go up again? Do we go up again and fight the Benjaminites? We just lost 22,000. Do we just miss the boat entirely here? If the Lord says, Judah shall go up, we think we're going to win. And so they're naturally confused and they're, they're mournful over the loss of their, their brothers. The Lord is humbling Israel here. Do you see that? Because even Israel is not spotless. You've read the book of Judges. You know that Israel, every tribe, has its own problems. The Lord is humbling Israel. He did this to them back in Judges 1 and 2. When the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Bochim, you might remember, means weepers. Because... Uh, Israel failed to conquer, to uproot all the Canaanites in the land. And their failure was God's way of bringing them back to the throne to cry out to him. And that's what these Israelites do. Day two, they are assured by God to keep going, keep fighting. 
And so the Israelites keep at it. But still, there's no promise. It just says in verse 23, and the Lord said, go up against them. Same thing. And so they obey. Perhaps thinking, okay, now is the day. We will be victorious. But still, 18,000 Israelites lost their lives to the Benjaminites that day. Again, they're confused. They are mourning the death of their warrior brethren. But this time, they do more than mourn. They sit before God. They fast. Which had to have been physically challenging to men who fought all day. Then they inquire to the Lord again. And this time, they do so in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. And through the priestly mediation of Phineas, Aaron's grandson. And here there's a contrast between Phineas, Aaron's grandson, and Moses' grandson. You remember, Jonathan, we finally had that big reveal of who this priest was. The Levite's priest and then Dan's priest. It was the grandson of Moses and we were all shocked because of his sinful union. But Phineas... It's a godly man. This Phineas was that great faithful priest who impaled Zimri and Cosby, that Israelite man who lay with that Midianite princess in a tent before the congregation. You can read about it in the book of Numbers if you aren't familiar with that story. These two people are in a tent being intimate with one another, and Phineas sees this and says, no, not in the Lord's assembly. So he gets a spear and he impales them. And he is praised for that because they were defiling the presence of God. And God not only praises him, he actually makes a perpetual covenant with the man because of Phineas's zeal for the house of the Lord that consumed him. And so we have day three. The Lord promises finally victory. He says, now go and get him. You will be victorious. And as we saw, the Benjaminites lose 95% of their army on that last sad but just day. So what, does, what, what did the Israelites have that the Benjaminites lacked? You see that in verses 26 and 28. Certainly they had, a, they had a just and righteous cause. Israel was on the side of justice as they sought these men of Gibeah. But more than that, the Israelites had God's means of grace. Do you see that? They had sacrifices. They didn't do away with sacrifices. They offered them from contrite spirits. They humbly offered their sacrifices to the Lord. They were confused. They were full of tears. But that did not force them to say, forget the Lord. I'm done with him because he didn't answer me the right way the right time. They kept worshiping, even while confused, even while full of tears. They kept worshiping. They offered sacrifices. They had the Ark of the Covenant before them. From humbled hearts, they knew that they were in God's presence. They took refuge that there was the Ark of the Covenant, and so symbolically, there was the Lord. God had not left them. How could they not be encouraged by that reality staring them in the face? The ark is there. God is there. But they also had Phineas. From a lowly posture, they sought God's face through God's appointed holy priest. 
Graciously, the Lord didn't pull away from them these vital means of grace. Oh, beloved of the Lord, you have the fulfillment of all those means of grace that they have pointed to. You don't need the peace offerings, the burnt offerings. You don't need the Ark of the Covenant. You don't need Phineas, as great as a man as he was. You have the once-for-all sacrifice, Jesus the Christ, whose death blends justice and grace at the cross. You have the forever presence of God. You have Emmanuel, God with us, in the person of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter that we can't find the Ark of the Covenant. You have Emmanuel. You have the perfect priest whose zeal for the house of God consumed him from day one till now. He is always about his father's business. And his father's business, his business, the Holy Spirit's business is your growth in him, your worship of him, your love for him, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. You have the perfect priest who always, whoever lives to make intercession for you, that sympathetic high priest who is spotless, has nothing negative to his name, but all things positive, all things blessed. You have him. You will always have him. And God's people must always then seek the face of the Lord in the face of affliction. Difficulty drives us before the throne of grace. That is, after all, why God, is, why God has designed it for us. And if you want another hard message, of course you do. Come back tonight, Psalm 6, in God's providence. Uh, I'm preaching on Psalm 6. I planned it a year ago. And you'll see its providential relevance if you listen to it. God is designing our own affliction to drive us to himself. The means of grace are there for us. Whether it is because of our sin or because of our suffering, the means of grace are there. And God has not pulled them away from us. He knows how much we depend upon these means of grace. Which is another way of saying he knows how much we depend upon Christ. Because they are means to the end. Christ. They are means of grace. Grace of whom? The grace of Christ. So to say that the means of grace are always here for us is to say that Christ is always here for us. Let us then always seek his face for his grace. Whether it is because of our sin, because of our suffering. Let's pray. Our most blessed God, we thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for giving us this difficult text of Scripture, that we might see the beauty of your grace, the light of your truth, even given this black, dark, uh, this black background of sin and suffering. We pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, strengthen us, nourish us, humble us. May we confess, may we repent, may we see our own sins, that we might see Christ who died for them, who canceled the debt, 
and who now by his Spirit is working out all things for his glory, for our good. Amen.